You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to speak through your word that we might justly fall under the condemnation that is ours but moreover by your spirit the eyes of our hearts might be open that we might behold Jesus and all of his forgiveness and beauty and majesty and run straight for him it is in his name we pray amen no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This passage should strike fear into the heart of anyone who is self-aware. Fear into the heart of the believer in Jesus Christ. If you don't read here in the third chapter of 1 John, does it make you feel a little bit squeamish? then you are either in a position of unbelief or self-righteousness. And in either case, should come out from your lost position and turn to Jesus this morning. So what are we to make of such verses? That if you're in Jesus, you would stop sinning. Otherwise, such sinning proves that you're not a Christian at all. Speaking for myself, this passage does frighten me because it describes me. Most Christians would readily admit that Jesus forgives sins. But what I mean by sin is not simply the selfish things that we do. Lying, cheating, stealing, lust, greed, and so on. But also for the innate condition of the human heart. We are sinners because we are sinful. Such things spring out of our hearts. And the cross of Christ deals squarely with not only the symptoms, but also the cause. Sin is any lack of conformity to the perfect mind of God. Or according to our text this morning, sin is lawlessness. Or put another way, sin is the transgression of the law. And every transgression of the law is sin. Where I grew up, there were any number of one-lane bridges. And a friend from out of town had come to visit and he wanted me to show him around. So we jumped in the truck and I let him drive. And and I was showing him everything. And sure enough, we pulled up to a one-lane bridge. And this was different from all the other ones. This bridge had planks on it and was a suspension bridge held together by a great chain with large links. And as he came to the bridge, he abruptly stopped and I could read his mind. And I told him, it's fine. I've driven over this bridge any number of times. Go on. It'll hold. And he said, but what about that? We got out of the truck and sure enough, there was one link of the hundreds and hundreds of links on that bridge it was starting to come apart. And if that one link 
had gone. In spite of the strength of all the other links, the bridge would come crashing down. And so it is with sin. It might look all and well to gather from a distance, but even if one link, just one, is amiss, the chain itself might as well completely fall apart. And so we think the same way about sin. That all in all, I'm a good person. I can keep it together. And yet every single one of us has the one weak link. So too we underestimate sin by judging it by its consequences. That is, we feel bad about it when bad things happen. I normally tell stories against my children, but in the interest of fairness, I'm going to tell one on me today. When I was in college, I got into a fight. Can you believe it? It was a real fight. It was a bar fight. And we found ourselves running through the streets of Charlottesville, and the guys that we were fighting ran up into their house, and they ran up to the third floor of their house, and one of them stuck his head out the top window and started yelling. And immediately I looked down and there was half a brick standing at my feet, so I picked it up and I threw it. And as soon as it left my hand, I knew I had good aim. And it hit him in the head and he began to fall out of the third-story window. Thankfully, his friends called him and pulled him back in. And I tell you, I lived in fear for a while because I thought, maybe he's dead. Well, he wasn't. I saw him all bandaged up later on that week. But I thought, maybe the police are going to come and get me. I felt really awful. But then I began to realize, what would I have felt if I'd thrown the brick and missed him? Would I feel as bad? Would I feel as guilty? Would I feel as if I had done something wrong? In my flesh, the answer is no. I've gone on on with my life and not thought a thing about it. And yet, the sin was just as real and the sin was just the same, regardless of the consequences. And so we're not to judge sin simply by its consequences. And John is going to great lengths to say, people make sin into a little thing. They trivialize it. They rationalize it. But sin ought to grieve our hearts. And so when we sin and think nothing of it, really it is our heart asking, who is God that I should obey him? We question his goodness. And we make God out to be the fool. And we make ourselves out to be, as one dean here at the Advent would have put it, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And so John is going to great lengths to say sin is real and the burden of it is real and you ought to feel it acutely. You ought to feel it coursing in every part of your life. How real it is and its damaging effects on you. You shouldn't simply shrug it off and make it into a small thing. Because we believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But what about habitual sin? The more I read up on this passage and I spent a great deal on it, I was astounded by the number of commentators and pastors who wrote and preached that there is certainly an assurance of forgiveness for the repentant sinner. 
but not for the habitual sinner. And I began to think to myself, which of my sins is not habitual? John says here, don't make a practice of it, but there are times in my life where I've made it into an absolute art form. My heart is a veritable idol factory. And so what hope is there for me? A habitual sinner. Well, what John is trying to say is that it's not necessarily the act of sinning. It's the way that we look at sin and our response to that. Some people will respond by saying, well, we've got to try harder. Turn up the volume. I'm just going to sin less. But then it becomes simply a matter of disposition. Because quite frankly, some of y'all's sins are easier to hide than others. The things that you tend to struggle with may in fact be respectable. And some of you are blessed with a certain disposition to be able just to get it together, at least outwardly. But then again, you've done exactly what John is telling us not to do, which is to assume that sinning or to stop sinning is simply outward conformity. Make sure everybody else thinks you're doing all right, regardless of what's happening on the inside, which is exactly what John is concerned about. And so it's not enough to simply try to keep it between the ditches. And for those that have been blessed with being really nice people who suffer from no vice who are good citizens. But all of us, regardless of our ability to keep it between the ditches, ought to be echoing St. Paul in Romans 7, who said, the very thing that I want to do, I find myself incapable of doing. And the very thing I want to stop doing is the very thing that I find myself doing over and over and over again. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But what is the mark of holiness of life that John is talking about? Is it to stop sinning? Is it to try harder to get your act together? Now John says it's to come into touch with the reality of who you are and your brokenness and your ability to ultimately get it together outwardly or inwardly. But above all, holiness of life is marked by surrender completely to Jesus. Because an awareness of sin does not drive the redeemed sinner to despair, but into the arms of Jesus himself. This is the point that John is trying to make. And he says, so if you're one of those who is struggling with sin, you've actually turned the corner. You're not like the people that he's talking about because there are those that were within the life of the church who have recently left the life of the church that John is writing to who think sin's not that big a deal. It really doesn't matter in my standing before God how I behave or what I think or, or what I believe about my life or even about who Jesus is. John says, no, it means everything. 
because you have to know yourself as a broken individual before you can grasp the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And so in light of knowing just how insidious sin is, John then turns the attention on Jesus himself. And the first thing he says is that you're a child of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So the moment that you feel like you're getting overwhelmed by sin, remember that you're a child of God. It's a great fiction, a great lie, even a great deception that the world tells us that we are all children of God. Now it's of course true that God is the creator of each and every single one of us, that each and every single person is endowed with certain rights and that we should strive for dignity and justice for every single human being. And yet the Bible singles out God's children as those who have put their hope in His Son, Jesus Christ, who have been adopted by grace through Him. John, who wrote this letter, says in his first chapter of his Gospel, All who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, God bestows the right to be his children. He adopts those who believe in his name, who trust in him. We are not God's children because of our pedigree, because of our own will, or simply because we were born. We are God's children because of what he has done for us in Jesus on his cross and in his being raised from the dead. And his spirit awakens faith in our lives that we might turn to him and live. Apart from Jesus, we are, as Paul says, objects of wrath, not of love. As John says here in verse 10, children of the devil. This is harsh, hard language. But John wants us to understand just how real all of this is and how each and every single one of us must reckon with it. And as believers, it shouldn't make us downcast. It should, of course, give us great concern for those who are outside of Christ. We should care that they are objects of wrath. But to know that you and I are children of God is of inestimable comfort. Earlier on in this letter, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. So when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. To be a child of God is to stand before a holy and awesome and almighty God and to not shrink away, but to say, there's my Father. There's the one who loved me so much that he sent his Son to die for me. Me, who didn't deserve it, who was once an object of wrath, saw me in my angst and anger against God and was willing to love me so much to die for me. It's amazing love that gives us freedom, that gives us assurance. And John says, you can know that. 
But John also says, well, what are we to do? Because on the one hand, we understand the struggle of sin. We know that we have forgiveness of sins and remission of sins in Jesus Christ and that we've been made children of God through adoption by his cross and resurrection. But we're also looking forward to his coming again. We eagerly long for Jesus to come again so that we might be made like unto him, that we can cast off this body of sin, that the struggle no longer persists. But in the meantime, how are we to live? Of course, there are implications for those of us who are in the world but not of the world. But any holiness of life, if it can be called holy, must be because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, not our willpower. It must be the work of the Spirit that works within us. And what is this work of the Spirit? To have us confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and to depend upon Him and Him alone for our everything. It actually means that we have the audacity to trust in His Word and to actually believe that the Holy Spirit is going to work through us in a miraculous way. So much so that fruit will be brought forth in our life because of the Spirit dwelling within us, not because of anything we've done, but the left hand doesn't even know what the right hand is doing. Paul writes to the Philippians that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That there's going to come a day when you're going to be redeemed, but right now know that the Holy Spirit of God or the seed of God, as John says here, dwells within you and is at war with the very passions of your heart. And the victory is already yours. And to further remember in verse 5, you know that Jesus appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. You're a child of God. The Holy Spirit is working within you. But also look to Jesus, even as a Christian, look to his cross. If you want to see change in your life, don't look at improving yourself, but look at Jesus. In fact, one of the great works of the Holy Spirit, as John would say, is his making us more and more aware of our own sin. That is a great work. I come from a large family, and any number of us are actually engaged in full-time ministry, and I have a great uncle who pastored a very large church for many, many decades. And so when we get together as a family, uh, those cousins of mine that are also pastors will often get together with my Uncle David, who's about 90 years old, and ask him about ministry, insights into ministry and, and things that he can pass on to us and really try to drink from the wisdom of a very wise, godly man. And one of my cousins, and I can say this publicly because I say it to his face all the time, is a total doofus. And he always asks the worst questions. And at one point he asked my Uncle David, Uncle David, do you find yourself growing in holiness as you get older? Do you find yourself getting better and better? And my Uncle David said, my propensity to sin has not diminished, only my ability to act upon it. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. The longer you walk this earth as a Christian, 
the more you feel your brokenness, the more you feel your sinfulness. But above all, every day, more and more, you feel your need for Jesus. It's not the other way around. It's not every day I get better and better, so I need Jesus less and less. For if we've become like that, we are the very people that John is writing against here in his letter. Oh, John is saying, feel the reality of sin. But when God comes into your life and makes you his child and fills you with his Holy Spirit and sets your eyes upon Jesus and his cross and his resurrection, the great irony is that sin feels even worse than it did before you were a Christian. You're even more aware of it. But rather than striving to try to get your life together, you turn your eyes upon Jesus and you look to him, the author and perfecter of your faith. And so, Christian, believe that there is hope and salvation for even the habitual sinner. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.